Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist from teachmetotalk.com, and I'm so excited that you've joined me today because I have a terrific guest. But before we get to that, let me make my announcement for our fall conference schedule. On October 17th and 18th, I'll be in Baton Rouge, and I'm so excited. I love going to Louisiana, so I'm so glad we could work out the details to get back there. And then another favorite place of mine is West Virginia, and I'll be at the Charleston Civic Center on November 7th and 8th. And to get more information about those dates, you can check out uh, the registration links at teachmetotalk.com. And if you're having lots of difficulties or need more specific questions answered, you can always shoot me an email at laura at teachmetotalk.com. And let me just mention, too, that even if you've seen Day one of that course before, which was early speech language development, taking theory to the floor, I've updated that so much and put some so many new things in and new therapy clips that we've decided just to start over. So that day has a new title. It's now Best Practices for Facilitating Early Speech Language Development in Toddlers with Communication Delays and Disorders, a long name. <laughs> but still a really fun day. So even if you've attended that course previously and gotten ASHA credit, you can come back to day one, and I hope that you'll join me uh, again there in those two cities. And still get ASHA credit for that. Also, if you can't travel to one of those great places, I have good news. Um, Day one of my course, er, well, of that kind of course series is now on DVD in an expanded edition, and again, because it's expanded, even if you've seen that course live, you can still get credit, and you can get uh, purchase information at teachmetotalk.com. All right, now let's move on to today's show. We originally had today's guest scheduled back in July, but I had kidney stones kind of at the last minute, and we had to cancel on her. So I'm so glad that Dr. Carol Gary decided to join us again today. How are you, Carol? Just fine. Thanks, Laura. I'm so glad you could come back and make room in your schedule. Now, Carol, you are you in addition to doing your fabulous website, practicalaac.org, you also teach. You have another real job, right? <laughs> I do. Like you don't mean real happy. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. We're I hope you didn't take right? that. It's so, true, so Laura. You I wear Yes, I do. I've been a speech-language pathologist for almost 30 years, believe it or not, and got my doctorate in AEC in special ed from Purdue University in, let's see, 1992. So for about the past 19 years, I've been a professor of speech-language pathology at Nova Nova Southeastern University in the Abraham Fischler School of Education um, down here in Fort Lauderdale, which is a really nice place to be. And at Nova, I'm the professor for the AAC classes, and um, we require those at the master's and doctoral levels. Then two days a week, I get to do clinical work with my graduate student clinicians who are providing AAC services um, to both children and adults. Um, And we do that in our clinic and and, um, out in the community. And I've been very fortunate to have been involved in AAC 
at ASHA as well. I served as the coordinator of their AEC division for several years and done some writing. Um, a colleague and friend of mine, Gloria Soto, co-edited the book on AAC in the schools called Practically Speaking. And of course, you mentioned the blog that um, I do with another friend and colleague, Robin Parker. So I've been very lucky um, in my career and fortunate to be invited to present at national conferences, both here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, looking forward to traveling to Canada and Australia in the coming year to oh. talk about AAC. So as you can see, AAC is obviously a big part of my professional life, and I'm so, so appreciative of the opportunity to um, be with you and your audience here this afternoon. Well, I'm excited that you could join us for this, and let's just start off by talking about what AAC is, because I think there are lots of misconceptions, lots of speech pathologists, and I know lots of parents just think about that as using a device, but it's much more than that. So why don't you give us kind of the a working definition that's, that's more realistic, even for those of us who are uh, professionals and may not have the benefit of having your um, fantastic background. You're so right, Laura. Um, it's a great question. Always a good idea to get everybody on the same page with respect to definitions and terminology. So when we talk about AAC, we think of this, a set of strategies and tools that really has emerged to meet the needs of these people that have very significant communication um, difficulties. And I guess one of the things I really love about the field of AAC is that it kind of emerged from the bottom up. It wasn't from academia down, it was from clinicians on up. So it was first written about um, in the SLP literature in the 1950s, surprisingly. Um, wow. It obviously didn't really gain a lot of popularity until about the 1990s. You know, because at that time, you know, technologies were becoming more readily available. Right. Um, and in most cases, when we think of AEC, what we're referring to, and you mentioned this, was, is a multi-component system. And it includes things like gestures and manual signs and vocalizations and body movements and pictures and printed words on communication books and boards. And, of course, that specialized technology um, that most people think about. And that can be either really super simple or very sophisticated. Um, and sometimes that technology is designed exclusively for communication or it could be something that's more mass-marketed, like um, a, a laptop computer that's used with AAC software, or an iPad mm -hmm. or an Android tablet that has a specialized communication um, app. So all of these things combined would make up a child's individual AAC system. Yeah, and I think it's so important to think about that, as you said, with multiple components and all kinds of possibilities. And Carol and I were talking before the show started that neither of us in our our initial kind of training, and I, I think that you specialized in AAC and you got your Ph.D., but when I went to school, certainly in my bachelor's program and even in my master's program, we didn't have very much formal education um, with the you know even beyond using signs that that was new that was breaking information <laughs> when I went to school in the late 80s and early 90s and so I even uh, shared with Carol before we started too that early in my career when I know and when I knew that a child needed 
something more than what I could give, I might call in a specialist, and we're so fortunate in the Louisville area to have people who specialize in AAC, but sometimes the match with what the the speech pathologist recommended, it, it wasn't a good match for the child that I was working with and I was sharing with Carol. That's because I knew the child better, but I didn't know the devices or, or the vast, even uh, all the different things that, that we could do with the kid. And the expert knew all that, but she didn't know the child. So it's so good when we can can combine this and just everyday practicing clinicians have access to this information. So, again, this is something that lots of us are learning as we go, and I do think your page and your blog, uh, your Facebook page is what I keep referring to, and your blog have been so, so helpful to us who are out there, again, in the real world, (laughs) trying to find solutions for kids that we see every week. Well, thank you for that, Lauren. You know, um, it's the reality that um, most SLP graduate programs even today don't have students requiring um, to take a course in AAC. Now, they're supposed to be able to demonstrate competence in that so that, you know, um, they may get it in part of, let's say, a motor speech course, or they might get it, um, you know, in an aphasia course. But, you know, most SLP graduate programs today don't um, require that their students get, you know, a comprehensive course they know AAC assessment and intervention for children and adults. So, you know, those of us who've been practicing for a while and say, okay, we went to a grad school before this came out, um, you know, it's even true of clinicians who are graduating today in many cases. Um, There are a lot of people out there that just don't have all the information they would like to have in this area. Well, I'm so glad you're joining us so you can... um help get this information out there to those of us who really, really need it. So we, you know, I specialize in treating very, very young children, toddlers and young preschoolers. So I know you work with AAC across the spectrum with lots of age ranges. I think you see adults too. But when we're talking about really, really young kids, Carol, let's try to focus um, a lot of what we're talking about with that while yet knowing it's it's out there even as our kids grow up and, and leave us for other clinicians. What what are some things that you think about or that you would want speech pathologists who specialize in early intervention to know about candidacy for um, using AAC and, and those kinds of initial recommendations? Well, I think that's a great place to start because a lot of clinicians – you know, first of all, wonder, you know, who is a candidate? Does everybody, you know, that I see that has a communication delay, are they candidates for this? And, of course, you know, as we all well know, there are very few things that are applicable to every child, and we're certainly not saying that AAC is going to be needed for every child with communication difficulties. There, You know, as clinicians, there are a lot of things that we think about when we're trying to figure out, you know, we have a little one in front of us, and is AAC an appropriate option for that one? And I guess the first thing that I think of is etiology. You know, if we have a baby with a very significant motor impairment, for example, who's identified early in the first year of life, you know, we have some strong indicators that we might want to start educating that family on AEC. And, you know, as as the field has developed, there's been some very interesting research with these little ones. Um, you know, research is, of course, our clinical practice as well, 
has shown that we can have really positive outcomes starting the AC with babies as young as six to nine months old. Um, so there's a wonderful um, study that I think has been, um, uh, you know, kind of a line of studies really done at Penn State under the direction of Don, Dr. Janice Light. And they have a wonderful website called AAC Kids. Um, and, you know, they're, they, you know, it's a very practical site, shows videos of, you know, from very young all the way through, you know, the younger preschoolers. So etiology is one thing. Um, certainly the co-occurring conditions is another big one. So, for example, if we're working with a little one and they're suspecting autism and we're also seeing signs that they may be apraxic, you know, if it's a child that, you know, failed the newborn infant hearing screening and they have right. cerebral palsy. So, you know, if there's that double whammy, right, then we're also, you know, thinking, you know, more carefully about AAC. And, of course, looking at what their communication profile looks like at the moment. So kind of beyond that, it's about making the decision are these. First of all, is there a significant gap between what this little one can say and what they want to say? So the wider yeah. that gap is between what they want to say and what they're able to say, then the more important AAC becomes. And then the second thing I think about there is how quickly or how slowly might that gap change, right? So my prediction is, my best guess is, that they are going to make pretty quick progress to close that gap, right? Then I might not want right. to go down the path with that family. But if I'm thinking, you know, I'm seeing some things here as I'm working with this little one that suggests it may really take a while for speech and language to develop, then we generally recommend an AAC approach. Um, so, Laura, notice what I didn't say here, right? I didn't say anything <laughs> about cognitive skills, right? No, I didn't I say anything about specific cognitive skills, and that's because there are no cognitive prerequisites to AAC use. And I think that's something a lot of um, families and practicing professionals may not understand. It's not necessary for these little ones to have, you know, specific cognitive skills, you know, the way we thought it was when I was a grad student, babe, 100 right. years ago. You know, we were looking for, okay, do they have means and relationship? Do they have object right. permanence, functional use of objects? Right. And don't get me wrong, we love those skills, right? But they're not prerequisite. Yeah. So if the kids don't have the skills, it's certainly going to impact how we implement the AAC and the tools we use and things like that. But it's really important for, you know, the listeners to know that the lack of those early cognitive skills is not going to prevent kids from learning to use AAC. Then the other thing I didn't mention was behavior, right? We love when the little ones have good eye contact and can sit at the table and pay attention, follow directions and cooperate. We love all that. <laughs> But it's not a required factor for AAC intervention. So if they don't have that good attention, you know, we modify and deal with it. You know, we adjust how we could learn, but, but we're not withholding access to AAC. So those, those are some of the early questions that I get um, from clinicians who are working with the little ones. Yeah, and I think they're really, really important things. And here, here's my thing with that, Carol. I've seen it. I've followed a lot of clinicians who've tried to introduce some AAC and moms and dads have gotten really negative 
about it because they weren't really, uh, the therapist wasn't really introducing it in a way that was functional and didn't really get anything beyond that so that when there wasn't early success with it in a session, the therapist kind of chunked it and moved along. So a parent might become negative about that, thinking, oh, that's not going to work for us. So what right. what would you say in that situation? I'm sure you've seen that too. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, acceptance and buy-in is so important no matter what the disorder of the of the child and no matter what our th- therapy approach is. And with AAC, that is just magnified in, in a major way. Um, you know, there's a huge adjustment um, factor that we have to be really skillful in handling. You know, let's face it, no parent dreams of having a kid who has significant speech difficulties. You know, no parent wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I hope my kid uses the machine instead of his natural voice, you know. Um, But parents do say, I want to know what's bothering my child. I want to know what he's thinking, what she wants. I want to hear him say, mama, and I love you. So I think what we're, you know, as SLPs, when we're evaluating a child and we see the clear need for some sort of AAC support, it's really important that we present the family with a clear picture We have to let them know that, look, in the care of a knowledgeable and experienced SLP, that their child's going to be able to communicate those things and that AAC may be a good path to get them there. Um, I think, you know, I mean, those of us who are parents know, you know, we want accurate information. We want current information. And when we talk to families, you know, our goal has to be helping them become informed decision makers, informed consumers, so that they can partner with us in, in these kinds of decisions. And I think, you know, no matter what their background or, you know, ethnicity or their socioeconomic status or the, the issues in their family, you know, they want clear information from us to help them make um, that decision. And I think, honestly, as SLPs, we're not always as forthcoming as we could be with that. I think we can do a better right. job at articulating our Oh, Carol, you're cutting out a little bit. Can you say that last little part again? We need to get better at articulating. I lost you after that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Our rationale is behind the recommendations that we make, right? right? So, right. so you know, like when right. we go to the doctor, if we have a serious issue, we just we want to know that it's more than our doctor's opinion that this medication or surgical treatment or whatever is going to work. We want to know that there's some, you know, rich form of empirical support behind that. And in AAC, right. I think, I mean, that's there, but we don't always share that research evidence behind our recommendations. And I'm not suggesting well, that we hand family a stack of journal articles, right? But we can right. certainly summarize key findings that address whatever the issue of concern is, right? So if I'm working with a family who I can see in their eyes and in their behavior and their body language that they are hesitant to have their child use AAC, maybe out of fear that it might hinder their little one's speech development, we can certainly right. share some of the research reviews, right, as I've looked at this. You know, that, that Miller, you know, um, uh, meta-analysis in 2006, not brand new, that looked at it, a bunch of different studies, and found that, you know, 82% of the individuals in, in across these studies that have developmental disabilities showed an increase in spoken language when AAC was provided. 
So families want information that's specific, it's grounded in evidence, and gives them, you know, I think it's a very, you know, important perspective for them. I think it really is. And I think the problem, too, sometimes with practicing clinicians is, is they don't they don't know that information, Carol. It's not that they don't know that it's out there. They just don't, they haven't taken the time to, re- to read or to, again, maybe go to a particular course where they're going to find that. So they might feel a little uncomfortable saying, study, show, without right. being able to really back that up. And I think that that's just one of the challenges that we deal with when you're working every day and when you're seeing a full caseload and then really being able to uh, take the time to to step back and, and find that support so that you really know what you're talking about when you're in front could, of parents. I couldn't agree with you more, Laura. And in all honesty, that's why my colleague Robin Parker and I challenged ourselves to try something different because what we were doing – through our presentations and our writing and our teaching, it clearly wasn't sufficient to help the average clinician um, right. get a handle on us. And so we went to a much more casual approach. That's the title of our blog, Practical AAC, you know, um, because, you know, clinicians do want to know. I mean, I think one of the things that all individuals fear is looking incompetent in front of someone else. <laughs> exactly. We don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. And so realizing that we have no control over the time constraints that our colleagues and we face, you know, we thought let's go to a more casual, um, friendly, easier to digest approach. And we started the Practical AC blog. We got very involved in things like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn mm-hmm. and Pinterest, not because we had nothing to do with our spare time, but because <laughs> we thought, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different right. result. We thought, right. let's try something different. It may not be any more successful, but at least we will go to bed at night being able to say to ourselves, well, we tried something different, maybe that will work. Oh, I think it's hugely successful. And, again, in these, we don't always have time to sit down and read a journal article, but we certainly have time to work it into our regular social media, you know, spam that we're doing anyway through the day. And that's what I've really come to love about Facebook and Twitter and, all, and Pinterest and those other things that you mentioned because I feel like at least part of that time then isn't wasted <laughs> because I'm actually doing something uh, professionally driven too. And I've gotten my exactly. best information from those kinds of sites. And you don't always have 25, 30 minutes, but you can take 10 minutes and click through. And I love your blog because all of your entries are relatively short, and even if there's a video on there or another link or two, you can get through that in an entire uh, time that you're sitting rather than feeling like it takes a a large chunk of time to educate yourself. Well, we try to write the kind of articles we wish were available for us to have read when we were, you know, a little bit earlier in our own AAC journeys. And, and, you know, back to this kind of this point about AAC and natural speech, You know, if people take nothing else away from, you know, our conversation today, I think, you know, it's a great opportunity for them to know that this is a really important thing for them to talk with families about. 
Um, you know, of course, we always need more research on topics like this. But what the research that is available today is telling us is that the majority of people that have developmental disabilities who use AAC experience some improvement in their spoken output. So for a small percentage, you know, probably, you know, those with the most severe motor impairments or profound intellectual right. disabilities, for some people, there's no change one way or another, right? But in right. all of those studies that have looked at it, not a single one of those subjects got worse, right? Um, so another really huge. important finding of that literature is that there's no evidence that the use of AAC hinders the development of that speech and language. The majority are going to improve the number of sounds, the number of spoken words, right? And if anyone um, who's listening wants full references, we have several posts on the blog that, that have the full references to those studies. Um, you know, I think one of the posts was specific to kids with autism, but most of them were mm -hmm. more broadly based. Um, and, you know, what the research, you know, has found is certainly, you know, consistent with what um, those of us who are practicing in the field have experienced as well. You know, the kids that come to us and we use this approach, those kids who weren't making any sounds at all begin to, you know, make some sounds. Those who were making sounds, they get more word-like proto-words. And those, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, transition into true words. And the kids that were saying some words when they came to us are seeing, you know, vocabulary increases, increases in the length and complexity of their utterances, you know, along with other benefits, you know, that we could talk about if you're interested. Right. And so on what, what post titles would they look for at um, practicalaac.org? What kinds of things um, would they search to get that full reference list, Carol? Um, you know, there's a search button in there, and if you just search natural speech, you will get, okay. um, there's probably two or three posts that have some references, okay. and then there's also a post that, that talks about um, some related issues. So, for example, speech exercises, the relationship between that and speech development. But if you just get, if you, um, you know, put in the search term natural speech, those should come up. Okay. Not in front of a computer, but. Um, and people can always contact me there if they, you know, have any difficulties. That sounds great. Are you still with me? I think you're cutting out a little bit. I am. I am. Okay. Great. All right. So let's talk about what are some things that parents can do. We have a huge number of parents who listen to the show. I always say, sometimes I would say it's two-thirds professionals, one-third parents, but really it's probably more like half and half. So if parents are listening and they're thinking, okay, this might be something I want to try. This is something I want to talk to my therapist about next week. What are some things they can do and start to uh, think about when they're considering these options for their own child? Um, well, before we, I, I'm happy to talk about specific strategies, but before we do that, I want to um, talk more about some of the conversations that need to happen between parent and professional. Because a lot okay. of times when SLPs are comfortable using the AC, they advise families to wait and see how speech and language develops right. before, right. Wait, before proceeding to augment however the child is communicating now. And I want to give some um, families and clinicians some things to think about around that conversation. 
It certainly okay. seems like a reasonable and safe option in the beginning, but I want to share with you some ideas why it isn't as harmless as it might seem, right? So I think the first right. thing to think about, and speech-language pathologists know this well, speech and language develop at different rates. So if we have a child whose speech is quite slow to develop and we use an oral-only approach to therapy, in other words, a speech-only approach to therapy, then we're putting a ceiling on language development. Because if you think about it, the child can only use as much language as his or her uncooperative mouth is going to permit, right? <laughs> so if they can't put word and endings on words, for example, they're not going to be able to change the tense of a regular verb from present to past or make a singular right. verb noun into a plural form, right? Because in English, right. those markers are the ends of words because, they, and, you know, if they can't produce those final consonants, they're out of luck. So exactly. if you use an oral language-only approach with these kids, understand that you may be holding language development hostage. But when we allow kids to use AEC, now we can introduce strategies for those kinds of things, right? By supplementing their oral language with AEC, they can begin to use language that wouldn't be possible, right, using their natural speech mm -hmm. alone at this point. So in effect, we're allowing that language expressively to develop and move forward despite the difficulties they're having with articulation. The second it's point great, I kind of want to make, I think will resonate with parents and professionals alike, and it has to do with behavior, right? So when a little person mm -hmm. has something that he or she wants to say and their mouth is not being cooperative and they can't do it, they can't form the words, and that happens over and over again, then one of two things is likely to happen. One is that they're going to give up trying, right? Why bother if nobody understands me anyway, right? And that's really not very good for, for speech development, right? It's a really right. challenging situation for all of us who work with those kids who gave up trying, right? They just kind of have resigned right. themselves and they've gotten into a, a very passive mode. Right now, I have to teach them to want to communicate before anything else. So the other option is that they get so frustrated that they do what? Right? They act it out, right? So they may yeah. scream or push or grab or hit or dissolve into a puddle of tears, right? They act out their frustration in not being able to, stop, to express themselves. Now, right. we have, in, in speech-language pathology, we have a very clear and robust literature that speaks to this, and it says this. When AEC supports are provided appropriately, there's a rather rapid and significant decline in challenging behaviors, right? So those challenging behaviors diminish quick, quickly and significantly if the appropriate supports are in place. So that doesn't just mean giving the kid a choice board or a speech generating device or an AEC app on an iPad. It means going through a careful process of determining well, what tools and techniques are needed, then training all the players, right, the, the caregivers, the right. therapists, the educators, to implement those things. But when we do that, the results in terms of behavior are very positive. And I think that's something important both to parents and professionals. And, you know, finally, there, there's the point we talked about with natural speech. You know, AEC supports the development of natural speech. 
So given that, given that the use of AAC is likely to increase speech development and language development, it seems like the team would have to have a pretty robust rationale for not giving AAC strong consideration. So, you know, I just wanted to mention those things because, you know, sometimes wait and see seems very harmless, but it's really not as, you know, innocuous, you know, as it as it seems. Well, and I think it really speaks to the whole issue that we face in early intervention in the first place when children are referred late, when they don't get that initial referral for speech therapy until they're over three or pushing four, when we could have seen them in early intervention at 18 months, at 24 months, at 30 months, and we all know made a much bigger and a much more positive impact on that whole family situation if we had gotten the child in earlier. So I think that's really important information for us to think about, too, with AAC and the whole, it's just an extension of that whole, let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. And, again, as early interventionists, we hear that all the time, that we may not apply that um, even as we're thinking about AAC. We may just think about that and getting therapy started in general. So that's an excellent, excellent point. I'm so glad you you talked to us about that. All right, back to talking about parents. What are some things that, that we talk to parents about when we're first um, introducing? I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Sure, I'm sorry. Um, well, a few things that I would say all SLPs who are working with young children who have significant um, communication difficulties should teach families, right? First of all, the power of visual supports, right? Um, mm-hmm. If parents understand the fundamentals of the visual support, why we use them, how to construct them, how to implement them at home, if they understand those things and implement them with kids, they are going to reap benefits that make their lives easier, right? Right. So, namely, for behavior problems that come up and those that do are in milder form. Um, They can also go a long way in helping kids be more independent. So we work with lots of families who have implemented this and used it consistently, and they see that kids are able to do more on their own. So whether it's simple things like being able to get you know, ready in the morning, that's not so simple, or ready for bed at night, being able to get their backpack ready, or playing on their own a little bit. It's not magic, but with consistent implementation, visual strategies can make a huge difference in sort of bringing down the stress levels of families and helping things run smoother at home. Right. So, so what about kids that. who are symbolic, Carol? What, let me just interrupt you and ask about that because that's a big thing in early intervention. We'll have children who are really functioning way down at, say, the six- to nine-month level. They're not, they're not meeting those cognitive milestones. They're not doing tons of cause and effect or object permanence, or simple problem solving, yet a, a, maybe the physical therapist has seen them first, and they say to mom something like, let's use some pictures, and the mom finds out, you know, some someone she knows has had access to BoardMaker, and so you walk in, and there are all these black and white pictures all over their home, or written words, and somehow mom thinks, that didn't work for me. 
we tried this picture thing. We tried these visual things. That's that's not where we need to be. What do you say? And what do you what do you talk? What would you say to therapists who have started at a level that is just well beyond where a child is functioning cognitively well, or at that pre symbolic level? Sure. Well, I think you know this is why it's so important uh, for families to get connected with SLPs who know this area well. Um, and right. you know, I I always you know um, tell families that the first thing we want to do. Um, when we're deciding what the best next steps are for a child who is like the one that you were describing, maybe functioning, you know, at that pre-intentional level, forget pre-symbolic, right? <laughs> right. So right. Let me just kind of go over that You're so right. we're all on the we're um, we're all on the same page. Let me just review kind of the terminology that I'm going to use. So when I think of different levels of communication, I think at that earlier stage is pre-intentional communication, right? So this is a little one who is maybe crying because they're uncomfortable, not necessarily because they realize that when they cry, I'm going to come over and pay attention to them and help solve the problem, okay? So they're sending signals um, that I'm interpreting as communication, but they are not necessarily intending it that way. So all the communication that happens at this um, point is partner dependent because it's up to us to read that as communicative. So that's what I'm right. calling that intentional communicator. Then a step up from that is when they start to communicate on purpose, right? They got it. We did mm-hmm. everything we need to do to get them to transition from pre-intentional to intentional communication. But at this point, they're not using anything representational. So they're not using a sign right, to get milk or to ask for more. They're not using the approximation of a word to get their lovey. They're not using a picture to represent, you know, the Dora video that they love. Right. Right. They're doing very basic, non-symbolic expressions. For example, uh, if she's hungry, she might take my hand and pull me into the kitchen. Right, and if I give her right. uh, little guy this to me in a kindergarten classroom last week, she this is a little girl with Down syndrome. She handed me her juice box because that infernal thing, you know how hard it is to get the straw yeah. in there. She couldn't do that herself, and she was very communicative. She by handing it to me, right? She was asking me yeah. to help her, right? So she was communicating right. on purpose, but she wasn't yet doing that. in a symbolic, in a representational way. So the third and final step would be to get that little one to be communicating with signs and gestures gestures and natural speech with word approximations and pictures, whether they're on a device or on paper. Um, So those are kind of, that's the progression that, you know, we are talking about. And I think your question sort of was in the middle there. But is it okay right. to do if I back up this step and talk about sure. that? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. please, please. Because um, we have so many because, kids who are at that level, and therapists really out of sheer desperation, for, and they know this child is not going to talk for a while, but they don't know necessarily know how to get the child there and walk through that really sequential, logical progression and yet start at a level that's still too high even if they're not looking for speech to be 
the outcome there is there what they're using to communicate. Exactly. Well, I cut my teeth on this clinical population. And the only difference is the folks that I worked with who were pre-intentional and early um, intentional communicators, right, those first two, two stages, that were my caseload as a CF, um, those were adults. So if it can be done with people wow. in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, I promise you it can be done with our little munchkins. So, yeah. um, you know, this, this literature has been around a lot longer than the term EEC. And um, essentially there's a pretty simple formula for getting somebody from being a pre-intentional communicator, in other words, sending signals that I perceive as communicative, but they don't really have intent to communicate behind their delivery of those signals, getting them from that point to crossing that bridge into communicating on purpose, right? And the formula right. essentially is you take signals, right, that they are exhibiting, yeah. right? You have to agree as a team what signals you're going to focus on, right? So um, let me think. Um, so I'm thinking of one little person I know who when he really likes or wants something, he will rock back and forth very rapidly and forcefully, okay? So let's mm -hmm. say as, as a team, we all agree that's the signal we're going to look for and treat as if it's a request for something he likes, that he sees right. a request for my attention, which he might really like, right, mm -hmm. um, or something like that. So once we've identified that that's that signal, anytime we see that, right, what do you think we do? We're going to reinforce it. Exactly. So we drop You're everything. Fighting. We rush over to little Johnny, right? They, you know, right. do our backflips make the biggest fuss we can imagine right. so that he's enjoying himself for the next 45 seconds, right? Exactly. Then I may wander back to what I was doing. And if he does it again, guess what? <laughs> I make a beeline back over there, right? It's showtime so again. Yeah. So you take that signal. Everybody has to agree this is what we're looking for and this is what we're going to say it means. And then as you see that, everybody responds to it in that same way. And what that does is help the learner of any age connect the dots. Oh, my goodness, when I do that, look at these wonderful things that happened, right? And so then he begins to do it more purposefully, right? And there we cross that bridge into intentionality. We've helped him realize that, oh, my goodness, I can control my environment a little bit, right? And once right. you've done that, I mean, it, it's just a normal drive of most humans to want to right. impact and control things in, that are happening around them. So does that kind of make sense as a, as a pretty simplistic but general it totally, strategy? It totally makes sense, but we have to be so aware and really looking for those subtle little signals as you call them, because sometimes it's just a look. Sometimes it's, you know, again, something that can be really, really subtle that we have to assign meaning to. And, again, I think the key is getting everyone on the same page so that you're really able to shape that behavior and make it cross over to that intentional 
um, state so that we know the child, yes, he's doing this on purpose. This is no longer an accident. And that's the verbiage exactly. that I use with parents. Right, right. And, and my favorite way to do that, to figure out those signals, is to um, observe or watch a video of the child interacting with mom and dad. And what I say to them is, we're going to go ahead and watch your ch- you and your child playing together. Right? You stop me every time your son or daughter is doing something that is telling you something, that's communicating to you. Right? So, mom, you know, we're watching a little bit, and mom says now. Right? And so we stop it. Or, you know, if we're watching the child play with somebody else, I say, okay, tell me what you saw. Right? And she'll describe it for me. Oh, he was rocking and now he stopped. Right? Right. Oh, okay. And tell me what that means to you. Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I know he does that when, you know, he's really interested in something. Right? When he wants that thing. And often we think of, oh, it's movement that, that, that communicates. But sometimes in kids, we've all worked with those kids that move nonstop. (laughs) Sometimes it's the absence of movement or the pausing in the movement that is communicative, right? I've worked with a couple kids who pace, right? They're constantly walking. You know, they burned a sort of a a hole in the rug (laughs) in the pattern in their family room between the coffee table, the TV, and and grandma's recliner. There's a little triangle. Right. And so maybe when she goes, you know, up to something and stops, right, that's her indication that she's interested in that thing. So watching with family, um, I have found to be very valuable in figuring out what some of those signals are. And then if they're in early childhood education or preschool or daycare, talking to, you know, the aides and the caregivers because, you know, Mm -hmm. they're the ones. Speaking as a former teacher's aide, I will say, and a former nurse's aide, I will tell you that that, that they're often going to be very valuable allies um, in, in figuring these things out. I think so, too. And I think you have to do careful, careful interviews. And really, and I love the idea of watching a video because sometimes when we're there and when it's happening, we miss things, even if it's happening right before us, that we see if we look at it a little more objectively. Exactly. That's that's a a good strategy, a good a good recommendation. Okay, so we're going to reinforce so that we can get children moved from that pre-intentional to early intentional stage. What comes next, Carol? What do you talk about next with parents and with therapists? Well, once they have um, a good foundation of pre uh, of intentional. Um, communication that isn't yet using symbols. Um, I look at how they're doing that. So one of the things I'm looking at is how often are they communicating. Sometimes the first thing that we do to build up the foundation is to get them communicating with their current strategies, but just a lot more frequently. You know, right. and the way I kind of families about this is I know families are really anxious to get going, right? They um, they want to move forward with pictures or apps or an AEC device, right? <laughs> but if you know, I live here, you know, um, not too far from from the ocean. And if you're building a house by the beach, you don't build it on the sand, right? You dig down to bedrock, right? You want all of the hard work that you're going to put into building and furnishing your house and putting all your love in that. You want that to be secure. 
And so it's worth drilling down and building that foundation. And, you know, one of the things that is part of that foundation is making sure that there are adequate rates of communication. In other words, the child is communicating frequently, okay? Now, for typically developing kids, you know, they are communicating all the time. So when they're ready yeah, when they're ready to learn a new skill, it happens quickly because they're doing right. it so often. If right. we're working with a, with significant communication challenges, and he's only communicating once every 15 minutes, right, it's going to take me forever and a day to mm-hmm. get him to the highest level of communication. So before right. I might introduce signs or pictures, let's work on that. Let's teach families how to create those teachable moments. Let's teach families to mine their daily routines so that they can build communication opportunities and shore up this foundation. Because children with significant communication challenges express themselves far less frequently than other children. Right? That makes sense, right? Because it's hard for them, right? It's difficult for them. And all of, all of us, the things that are hardest for, for us, you know, we'll do as often as we should, right? Right. whether it's exercise, exercising or, you know, whatever it is, right? So the problem is exactly. to be a better communicator, you have to be communicating. And the more you're trying to express yourself, the easier it is for you to teach someone, you know, for someone to teach you a more advanced or higher level way of communication. So one of the things I would suggest to, fam- to, to families is go to your clinicians and, 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 and work with them on this and say, how can I learn to make minor change in my daily activities? Having meals, getting dressed, reading books, playing with toys. How can I make some modifications to what I'm doing and what I'm saying, right, so that, this, that my child is doing what she does more frequently, right? Um, and you want your clinician's guidance on that because there are right and wrong ways to do it. Right, so the instruction right. of an SLP is is important, right? You don't want parents using a drill and practice approach, right? Because if communication isn't fun, you're going to have less the kids doing less of it, not more of it, right? Exactly. So the best way to do it is to arrange the situation to create a natural need for communication. So instead of giving my little guy a handful of goldfish at snack time, I might give her only two. Right, because now I've given her a reason to communicate. She wants more, right? right? And she knows I have them. And the only way it's going to be to get them is to go through me, right? So for a little one, I might want her to say must or more. Um, If it's an older child or with more advanced communication, I might want a full sentence. I want more, please, or give me a lot or something like that. But Mm -hmm. the point is we have to teach families how to replicate these situations so that, you know, we, they are creating that ultimate, ultimate teachable moment. You're changing the dynamic, so now the kid wants to communicate to get what they want, right? And that's a very different dynamic, right, than when kids do things because we want them to do it, right? You know yes. how persistent some of these kids can be when they want something. Well, and I call that talking to parents about letting the child do his or her part. They're supposed to be, you know, again, partaking in all of these daily routines we do, but we train a lot of our little guys to be passive because we don't have expectations that they 
have to do anything to get the next goldfish or to get the sock on or the shoe on or whatever we're waiting on. We kind of in our hustle and bustle to get out the door or just to get through the day do lots and lots and lots of things for our kids, which in turn make them uh, less likely to communicate with us because they know it's going to happen anyway. All I have to do is kind of wait this lady out. She's in a hurry. Let me just kind of sit here. And so we do have to give those those opportunities. Laura, such a good point. I have a funny story for you about that. Many years ago, um, I saw a family, and this little boy uh, was referred to me uh, by a preschool of, that served children with autism. And this was a little boy, and I think he was probably maybe um, just just three and a half maybe. I mean, he had autism. He has um, hemiplegic cerebral palsy. He had a paralyzed wow. local fold. He had had a tracheostomy oh. that had just been recently closed. He had a peg tube. Um, and he had a That's lot a of challenging Right, he had a lot of challenging behaviors. He was one of those kids. We were in portables at the time, and he would, she would bring him in, literally kicking and screaming. So I wow. remember the first time I sat down with this mom, and I was with a team of graduate students, and I said, you know, given all his situations, talk to me about what you see as his biggest handicap. What is challenging him the most? And she said, can I be honest with you? And I said, hey, knock yourself out. That's what we're here for. And she said, he's the only son in an Italian family. And I knew exactly what she meant by that because I married into one. And here's what she meant. She meant that he was a prince, that everybody got him, his sisters and his grandparents and his parents, his needs before he even knew that he had them. So there were never any demands put on him until he left her eyesight. And that was true. And so of all the things that were problematic in his life, the thing that held, held him back the most is that he had zero tolerance for anything that wasn't, like when he wasn't getting his way. And so that's the first thing we worked on, right? That's the very first thing we worked on. Is and learning how to set reasonable expectations, right, right. and be able right. to put demands on him with appropriate support, so that he can right. better tolerate, you know, um, you know, you know, people not giving him or assuming that they knew what he wanted and, and, and entertaining him. A little bit of frustration there, but it has to be that perfect balance because if your expectations are too high. You lose those kinds of kids altogether, and then it takes 20 minutes to <laughs> calm Absolutely. down. Right, Absolutely. right. So you have to so, really walk that line. So I'll tell you about my, my next five minutes, my first five minutes in working with him. Um, this dates, this gives it a, a historical perspective because Barney, the, the purple dinosaur, wow. was all the rage at the time, <laughs> and he loved Barney. And so, of course, um, I had found that out in advance, and I had a Barney book. And he was laying on the floor um, looking at this Barney book, and I had um, a big picture of um, the um, PCS symbol for more, and it kind of looks like, mm-hmm. you know, the manual sign for more. And right. so um, I kind of um, kneeled next to him, and after he was playing with his Barney book for a little bit, 
I gestured mine, Carol's turn, my turn with the Barney book, and I took the Barney book away from him. And what do you think he did? <laughs> Fell apart. <laughs> he held on hard, as a, and I got it away. He started tantruming. He started thrashing and screaming and kicking, and I put that big, that whole, that eight and a half by eleven picture of Moore right in front of him. And he was so mad, he of course punched it. And as soon as he did, I said, "Moore, here you go, Moore Barney book," and I plopped it right in his hands. I let him play for thirty seconds. He's still mad and still crying, but he's playing. When the tears kind of stopped a little bit, and he was going Mm -hmm. from full sob. Just you know, kind of catching his breath. Then I said, "My turn, my turn for Barney book." I took it away and put the picture in front of him again, and repeated that a few times. Over a few minutes, I got a little further away till I wasn't Mm -hmm. straddling him anymore. I was next to him. Eventually, the picture was on the floor. Eventually, it was two feet away, and he had to crawl and get it. Eventually, it was on the table. And he had to crawl over, get up on his knees, and reach and do it. But you know what? It didn't take that long. Within 15 minutes, we were at that point. But so many great things were happening there because you you, you found the best motivator that you could for him, and you didn't work at a level that was too hard. All he had to do was touch the picture. And so, so many great things happening with that story. Exactly, and those are the kids that really teach you what you need to know, aren't they? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad you ended kind of with that story. In this last three minutes that we have, I can't believe this hour is over. What suggestions would you give the speech pathologist who are looking for more information about AAC? And, again, these are people who haven't had the form course, but they have kids right now on their caseload who desperately need something to what they're currently doing. Well, first of all, I would say to them, thank you. We desperately need more SLPs who are competent in AAC, and so your interest alone um, earns you my undying gratitude. Um, And the second thing I would say is that the community of AAC professionals is a very generative and collaborative one. We are in this because it's our passion, and we do this because we're unwilling where people with these severe speech challenges are relegated to second-class citizens or segregated from their peers. Um, So in terms of suggestions, I would say become part of that community. Seek us out through the Internet, through websites and blogs. Um, You're probably an ASHA member. So look at the ASHA Division of Special Interest Group 12. For $35, you can be part of that community and, you know, have places to go to get quick answers to your questions. Um, Look on Facebook. There are wonderful Facebook groups. Um, You know, on Twitter, there are relevant hashtags for OGCOM and AAC and assistive tech. Um, And then in terms of your clinical practice, start by learning about the AAC kind of applications that fit your clinical population. You know, build on your strengths. Don't don't focus on the stuff that that is the most challenging for you. Build on your strengths. So if you're already an experienced EI provider working with kids who are suspected to be on the spectrum, start there. And whatever you already know, kind of build build on that. Challenge yourself maybe to learn something new every month, right, or every month, other month. Maybe you're used to using the AC to provide choices. So maybe next month you can think about how to broaden that to other kinds of requesting. 
for action than people or recurrence or attention. Or look at some technologies um, that are out there that may be new to you. Um, eye gaze technologies, if you're working with little ones with Rett syndrome or cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, right. and, and then, you know, te- you know teach someone else. Um, you know, make parents an active part of the process to teach them to do what you know. Um, you know, because the bitter reality is that for many kids with AAC needs, the quality of their daily communication is not going to improve with therapy alone, right? We have to get the right. whole team on board. Um, these kids right. do best when parents and teachers are involved, um, and families want to provide that. But unless we do that teaching and monitor that implementation, they're not going to have the confidence and the skill base to help the kids, their kids the way they want to. Exactly, and I think your advice just to, is just jump in there with what your strengths already are. And one thing that I had to really, as I'm, you know, diving right into this too, and this is still pretty new for me in the five years or so, is to take activities that I already know kids like. Take things that I already know work with young children and build AAC into those same activities. You do not have to reinvent the wheel here. If you know that kids like little social routines that you have, figure out a way to introduce uh, a picture support or whatever, uh, even a low-tech device, figure out how to get that into that routine that you are already good at or into that that um, potato head game or whatever the kid already likes. You know, don't feel like you have to, again, go out and find something brand spanking new to the both of you. Introduce it with something that's already familiar to both you and the child. And I think that's my piece of advice, and that's certainly something that, that made me more comfortable. And then, of course, I felt more comfortable teaching a parent to do that as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I guess just, you know, we all have to view our own competence in providing AEC service as a process. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Right. So, you know, we just have to keep challenging ourselves, but be gentle. You know, um, the only real failure is giving up on something. So just hang with it. Exactly. Exactly. Carol, you've been so much fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining oh, me today. Pleasure. This was a fantastic show, and I hope that parents and professionals and anyone listening um, got new nuggets that they can use in their clinical practice or at home with their own child. And, again, I want you to tell us how your blog and then your Facebook page is what I like the most and what I all, that's how I usually get back to your blog is clicking on your links. And you are a prolific poster. I think you post almost every day on your Facebook page. We do. We started in January 2012, and we've been posting daily since. Um, the name of the blog is Practical AAC, but misspelled to have AAC in the middle. So it's P-R-A-A-C-I-C-A-L-A-A-C. And you can go on Facebook and um, um, you know put that in the search box and find us as well. And on Twitter, too. So, again, on, thank you yep. so much. Carol, I love having you, and I hope you'll come back in six months or so. I would love to, Laura. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Next week on our show, we have Sherry from Playing With Words, and I can't wait to talk talk to her because she is is as obsessed with toys as I am. So I hope you'll join me for that show. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye.